0: The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. Alright, hi everyone. So, I'm going to start with a little anecdote to change things up. Um, While I was researching for this talk, I overheard my boyfriend's niece and nephew playing a quiz game. Speak up a little bit? Okay. Um and they were given this riddle. I'll, I'll tell it, see if you can answer it. Um, if you've already heard this one. Um, a young boy and his father are in a terrible car accident and the father is killed. The boy is badly wounded and rushed to the hospital for emergency surgery. The surgeon comes in, sees the boy and says, I can't perform the operation. I can't perform the operation. This boy is my son. How is this possible? Anyone? Yeah? Oh, if, you, if you've heard it already, just one one minute, I'll let you say it after. <laughs> Has anyone else never heard it and want to guess? Okay. All right, go ahead, sir, please. I think you the Oh. <laughs> No, I I asked him, I said he could (laughs) So so the answer, yeah Is that the the doctor is the boy's mother Um, And Lost my place already Um so I didn't get this either when I first heard it, but um, what I thought was interesting was that both the kids that that were asked this got it immediately. They were like, duh, it's his mom. And um, they didn't even understand how it was a riddle. So, and I thought that was cool, and then I remembered that their mom is a doctor. And, and I thought, well, that, that is cool, actually. Um, but just, I, I thought the way they were, just they, they took this notion that a woman can be a an surgeon, and of course that that's a given. Um, I just, uh, it it uh, it illustrated for me a point that I wanted to get across today, which is that human ideas, for instance, about women, can, what women can do or not do, are not a given. Um, they have to be taught by our surroundings and our social reality. So if you didn't get the riddle, don't, don't, uh, don't worry. It doesn't mean you're a sexist. It just means um, your mom wasn't a doctor, probably. Um, so what about our social reality today, which uh, informs our ideas about what's possible? Um, because as we know, women's oppression are, are more than just ideas. And I'll take a minute now just to take a quick stock of where we're at and what we're up against before I dig down into the roots of um, where women's oppression came from. So um, here we are, some 35 years after the end of the women's rights movement of the 60s and 70s, which fought for demands like equal pay for equal work, public funding for child care, and legalization of abortion. And we've seen since then all of those ideals and reforms come under sustained attack. Women are still paid 75% of what men are paid in the U.S. The Asia Women's Association reports that In the world as a whole, women comprise 51% of the population, do 66% of the work, receive ten percent of the income, and own less than one percent of the property. The UN development program reports that women's unpaid or underpaid labor in the in the world as combined total represents eleven trillion dollars. In the US alone, the number is one point four trillion dollars. The effects of our economic crisis are hitting women especially hard. The Ms. Foundation reported that, quote, the last subprime mortgage crisis took a higher toll on women, especially women of color, saying that while 20 per- 24% of men hold some subprime mortgages, for women it's 32%, and African-American and Latino homeowners were 30% more likely to have received a subprime loan. And abortion rights are under particular attack. The New York Times reported last month that 11 states in just this year so far have passed anti-abortion legislation calling for further regulations and restrictions. Only 12% of U.S. counties today even have an abortion provider, and for rural counties it's 3%. Uh, Women today still face high rates of violence and rape, with the UN reporting that one-third of women worldwide will be raped, beaten, coerced into sex, or otherwise physically abused in her lifetime. And in the U.S., one in four female college students will be raped during her college years. That was pretty crazy to me. Um, So we clearly have some work to do. Uh, We definitely need a new movement, and I just want to mention how frustrating, how frustrating and confusing it can be right now for people in the absence of a women's rights movement, um, when our mainstream media gets to mostly act like what sexism, you know, um, like it's a thing of the past and like we're in this enlightened post-feminism era. <laughs> Have you heard that? Um, you know, they're like, look, Sarah Palin and Hillary Clinton are like, you know, they seem happy. And, um, any woman can get where they are if you just work hard and take care of your skin and marry a senator, raise well behaved kids, and pass the bar exam all before dinner and you're golden. Um, uh, meanwhile, the same media is spewing this constant barrage of women's bodies being objectified everywhere you look. And, um, has anyone heard the song Sexy Bitch? The recent yeah. pop song. <laughs> it's unfortunate actually how catchy the tune is, but, <laughs> um, or, or I'll come out of a theater and and, uh, and think, am I crazy? Was could that entire movie have been sexist? Yeah, you wanted to see the Ashton Kutcher movie, Sarah. What did you expect? Um, so anyway, you're not crazy. It's it it is sexism, and we need to build another movement that that can uh, successfully call out and fight all this stuff. And in order to successfully fight women's oppression, we need to know what exactly is causing it, so we know what exactly needs changing. So, um, since the major idea in our culture about where sexism comes from right now is that it comes from human nature, um, this idea that it's always been around, men are just naturally dominant, women are naturally passive. Um, I'm going to start with countering that because there's overwhelming evidence that women's oppression has not always existed and that for over 90% of human existence, actually, there's been equity between men and women. Am I speaking louder? Can everyone hear me? Little, little louder? Okay, sorry guys. Um, So then I'll talk about how sexism did start and introduce Marx and Engels' theory of the roots of women's oppression and the rise of class society. Um, and the creation of the nuclear family. And finally, I'll talk a little about the role of the family today and why it's still the root of our oppression and how we might end it. So this idea that sexism has always existed is pretty prevalent, not just in our popular culture with caveman movies like that that one year one a couple years ago with Jack Black. That was too bad. And pop psychology books like Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. You know, we're like aliens, we're never going to get along. Um, or Newsweek's pseudoscience article about the supposed rape gene. But this idea has also been common among respected anthropologists, who, anthropologist H.R. Leach, for example, commandingly summed up all of humanity to say, history and ethnography combined to show that male domination has always been the norm in human affairs. Claude Levi-Strauss thought that all pre-class human societies were essentially male-based, and hinged on the control and exchange of women. E. E. Evans Pritchard agrees. It is a plain matter of fact, he says, that men are always in the ascendancy, and he therefore found it difficult to believe that the relative positions of the sexes are likely to undergo any considerable or lasting alteration in the foreseeable future. Great. Um... And even prominent feminist theorists, while at the same time trying to fight against male dominance, have based their theories about it on these same assumptions. Here I'll use a little sampling of feminist theories put together by leading socialist and author Sherry Wolfe, who is she in the room today? Maybe not. Sorry, Sharon Smith. <laughs> Sharon Smith. Um from her book, Women in Socialism, uh, which has been the the main essential resource for me for this talk and otherwise. So here are some feminist um, thoughts on male dominance. Sherry Ortner wrote, Everywhere in every known culture, women are considered in some degree inferior to men. She believed that women's ability to bear children brings them closer to nature, while men's capacity to... to, uh, for warfare allows them to dominate in the realm of culture. Susan Brownmiller sees man's ability to rape women leading to their propensity to rape women. Mary O'Brien said that men dominate women to compensate for their inability to bear children. Um, and some feminists, as Smith puts it have bent the stick in the other direction and said that men dominate women today because long ago there used to be matriarchy with all female rules so men are just getting back at us now for that I guess Um, so these ideas are common but there's actually enormous evidence that shows that women and men have lived in an egalitarian style for most of human existence with neither men nor women dominating the other Marxist anthropologist Eleanor Burke Leacock wrote another very excellent book, The Mess of Male Dominance, in which she explains that actually, in every instance of anthropological research that she's seen which shows supposed male dominance in ancient or pre-class societies, it turns out that it's either the result of male chauvinistic and false interpretations um, on the part of the researchers themselves which, lead, which leads them to assume that all the important functions in any society were performed by men, or it is the result of the ignored and long-term effects of modern male-dominated colonialism upon the living tribe studied, which fundamentally shifted the gender relations inside the tribe. She gives an example of a notable fellow anthropologist, George Murdoch, who blatantly omits from his book, of collected research of African tribes, accounts that show female authority. In his Handbook of African Tribes, she, I'm quoting I'm Leacock, in his Handbook of African Tribes, Murdoch writes of political authority among them as, quote, vested in a headman and council of lineage or family heads within the local community, and, quote, district or sub-tribal chiefs with important ritual functions says, no mention of missionary David Livingstone's encounter with the Belanda in 1857. At that time, women as well as men were chiefs. Um, I'll give you a little summary of the story that Leacock provides about this missionary Livingstone encountering um, a young female chief of the Belanda tribe in the African Congo. It shows some interesting contrast. Um, So Livingstone enters a Balanda village and describes being brought to see the chief. He wrote that a man and a woman, I quote him, were sitting on skins placed in the middle of a circle, 30 paces in diameter, and a little raised above the ground. I walked up to the center of the circular bench and saluted him in the usual way, by clapping together hands in their fashion. He pointed to his wife, as much to say the honor belongs to her. I saluted her in the same way and squatted down in front of them. This woman chief, this is Mina, um, was uh, Chief Naomuana, and Livingstone said he wanted to see her brother, the district chief in another village. Um, he told her he wanted to travel alone, but Chief Naomuana insisted that her people accompany him. And when her daughter, a young chief, Menenko arrived, she decided that she would accompany Livingstone, much to his annoyance. And when Menenko and her men were taking too long to leave, Livingstone saw an opportunity to leave without them. Livingstone describes how Menenko caught them and, quote, seized the luggage and declared that she would carry it in spite of me. My men succumbed sooner to this petticoat government than I felt inclined to do and left me no power. Being unwilling to encounter her tongue, I moved off to the canoes when she gave me an explanation. With her hand on my shoulder, put on a motherly look, saying, Now, my little man, just do as the rest have done. My feelings of annoyance, of course, vanished, and I went out to try and get some meat. (laughs) So, (laughs) it's a little clash there, but um, there's one more little little bit of the story that's telling. Um, When they arrived to see Menenko's um, uncle, who's the district chief, Livingstone offered him an ox as a gift, but then Menenko angrily asserted the ox to be be hers. She declared that Livingstone was, quote, her white man, and she she had her men slaughter the ox and gave her uncle one leg. Livingstone noted that the district chief, quote, did not seem annoyed at all at the occurrence, and then Leacock notes, thereby corroborating the correctness of Menenko's position. So I just thought Minenko and her absolute self-assurance, even with her uncle, the district chief, shows that this wasn't a culture at all in which women were expected to be submissive to men, either, even if they had a higher ranking. Um, and Leacock's book collects a plethora of other research, including her own, of women's status cross-culturally to show that women in pre-class societies have enjoyed the same autonomy and control of their own affairs as men have. She writes, quote, With regard to the autonomy of women, nothing in the structure of egalitarian band societies necessitated special deference to men. She talks about the monteney nascapi Indians of Canada and the accounts of the French Jesuit missionaries who encountered them in the 1700s. Um, quote, The Nascapi principle of autonomy extended to relations between men and women though some observers saw in great power and having quote in nearly every instance the choice of plans undertakings of journeys of winterings indeed she continues independence of women was considered a problem to the jesuits who lectured the men about allowing their wives sexual and other freedom and sought to introduce european principles of obedience Nikok shows examples that challenge notions that women are naturally passive or subservient, and even admits that, quote, Personally, I have been tempted to think of women as natural peacemakers. It is a role they play in many societies. Among the Naskapi, however, women joined in the protracted torture of Iroquois prisoners with even more fury than the men, in bitter anger at the loss of kinsmen dear to them. Um, and there 's lots of great great more examples in that book. Um, I really recommend it but if if we can assume that women 's oppression has not always existed, and these examples show that you know it hasn 't even if it 's just in these examples, um, then it must not be an unchangeable part of human nature, but rather it must have started somewhere in history. So when and how did it start um, Um, So Eleanor Leacock was actually moved to write her book in the first place because of her Marxist understanding of the world. And the theory is first put out by Frederick Engels using extensive notes of Karl Marx in the book The Origin, of the Family, Private Property, and the State. This book first laid out the Marxist theory that women's oppression didn't exist in ancient societies because there was no material basis for it and that the material basis for it arose only fairly recently in human history, about 6,000 years ago, at the onset of the first-class societies and the creation of the nuclear family. Marx and Engels developed their theory over their lifetimes, and rather than being an afterthought, or tacked on, as some critics have accused, their theory of women's oppression was central to their overall theory of class society. They base this theory not on assumptions or popular common sense ideas at the time, but rather on approaching the question from a dialectical materialist standpoint. This view sees that human cultures and behavior, such as sexism, um, sees these things as not being guided by some hidden gene or deep psychological quirk, but as being fundamentally based on how humans organize themselves to meet their basic material needs for survival. Angles explain materialism like this. According to the materialist conception, the determining factor in history is, in the final instance, the production and reproduction of immediate life. This, again, is of a twofold character. On the one side, the production of the means of existence, of food, clothing, shelter, and tools necessary for that production. On the other side, the production of human beings themselves, the propagation of the species. Marx put it this way a little more esoterically. It is not the consciousness of men that determines their existence, but their social existence that determines their consciousness. And they were able to more fully develop their theory of the growth of class society and oppression in the light of the writings of early anthropologist Lewis H. Morgan, who first put forth the idea that human societies have developed upon themselves over time passing through three major phases based on what Morgan called also maybe the first to really show that ancient societies were egalitarian without classes or male dominance and that they also had nothing like the like the nu- modern nuclear family structure um, and all of this confirmed Marx and Engels' existing hunches. So let's step back in time for a moment and see what the material conditions were that led to the first sex to, uh, to first... First no sexism, then sexism. Um, So this first hunter-gatherer stage has been the style of living for the vast majority of human existence, starting with the appearance of the first modern humans or homo sapiens about 100,000 to 200,000 years ago. Hunter-gatherers lived in in nomadic bands of about 20 or 30 people who traveled together hunting wild game and gathering fruit and root vegetables for survival. These groups lived in in an egalitarian style that was without classes and without gender inequalities. It would have indeed been impossible to accumulate any wealth at this stage of human development because nearly all food and goods that were found or produced were needed for immediate survival. The need to be able to carry all possessions from one camp to another every few days also meant that accumulating even meager possessions was of limited value. These bands organized their production collectively, and therefore everyone's contribution was important and valued. There also was, to various degrees, a sexual division of labor, which facilitated the different areas of work to be done. It would have been easier for women who were nursing or caring for a child, for instance, to do the gathering of food, making of tents, or weaving of baskets, while men would primarily do the hunting, although these lines were often crossed. And as hunting was not always successful, it was was then women's gathering which often provided the majority of the food for the band, giving women's contributions high importance. Even at the advent of the first settlements of horticulturalist societies, um, only about about 10,000 years ago, technology still didn't allow for growing much more food than was immediately needed. So accumulation, and therefore classes, were still impossible. Because of their egalitarian style, Marx and Engels called these early societies primitive communism. Sharon Smith explains why women's role in reproduction at this time did not hinder their role in production. Women in pre-class society, as she says, were able to combine motherhood and productive labor. In fact, there was no strict demarcation between the reproductive and productive spheres. Women, in many cases, could carry small children with them while they gathered or planted or leave children behind with other adults for a few hours at a time, likewise, many goods could be produced within the household because women were central to production. systematic inequality between the sexes was not existent, and elder women in particular enjoyed relatively high status so so that 's great, um, but <laughs> I just uh, I want to note that the idea that we should sort of return somehow to this ideal existence or this lost paradise. Um, You know, obviously it wasn't exactly carefree existence. Um, (laughs) It was a lot of hard work and um, so, and there was simply just no technology yet to accumulate um, the means for humans to oppress each other. But there was obviously oppressive conditions of life at that time. Um, So how did all this change? This egalitarian style started to change at the end of, of the horticultural stage of human development. In early horticultural societies, everything was, was still done collectively, the farming, the child care, the um, communally shared longhouses or wiki-ups. Um, but when people began to invent better and better technologies in agriculture, and especially after the development of the iron cattle-drawn plow and better irrigation techniques... There were for the first time in human existence the ability to produce more food than was needed for immediate consumption by the tribe. This first surplus of grains and other foods was probably at first shared among the tribe or stored for later use and save for times of drought or crop failure or disease. But disease among the animal herds, that is. Um, but because this surplus was not enough to provide ample nutrition for everyone during the disaster, there would be um, competition either for the surplus or the surplus would need to be entrusted with a tribal chief or respected elder. This surplus also allowed for further development that benefited the tribe. Um, instead of all tribes' people having to spend all of their time tending crops or animals, a few people could now be freed, fed from the surplus and dedicate their time to mastering other crafts, such as um, astronomy to help with crop plantings. Um, or or invent better storage technologies. Um, This small group of people who controlled this new wealth were dependent on the labors of the rest of the tribe. Um, And these, these these small groups of people were men, and I'll explain why in a sec. These men began over time to crystallize into a new class. This new class could start to trade this wealth, and as technologies increased... Production for the purpose of trade began. This wealth more and more was to be was was to be considered not as communally held property, but as the property of these men. As property private property grew over time um, the old communal social relations broke down and the main economic unit of society shifted from being an entire from being the unit as in the entire tribe as a whole to being atomized into private property holding men and their wives and offspring. As settlements and societies grew, these new property classes became landlords, pharaohs, and kingdoms. This process happened not overnight, of course, but but over the course of thousands of years. So, okay, why were these these few um, first first wealth holders men? So. This has to do, um, and the, the crux of Marx and Engels' argument lies, lies in this idea of the sexual division of labor. During the rise of class society, a simultaneous and related change was going on in the roles played by men and women in their divisions or spheres of labor before the iron plow came along women could have easily done a portion of the farming labor and other production within the home, such as weaving and tanning skins, but after the plow and other technologies, it meant that the general productivity of everybody was raised <coughs> sorry um. <coughs> So it became beneficial for tribes' to have more and more children to help with larger and larger fields of crops to increase their surplus. This meant that women were more and more tied to nursing and raising babies, which gave them less time to tend to crops or make things. Um, and at the same time, the cattle-drawn plow made, farmer, made farming more dangerous and less compatible with tending to small children. So women's overall sphere of work and influence, only production, sorry, only reproduction. And men's sphere of work, having historically included mostly hunting, was the natural place where the domestication of animals would have begun, and thus men probably developed the plow and would have been the ones to use it. So men's role was now becoming the primary or only productive role, which meant that it was only men who would be among the few to control those first surpluses and women would now be dependent on men for survival in a much more imbalanced way. So for the first time in humanity, the importance of women's reproductive abilities far outshadowed their importance in production. And so this shift away from production um, was the first blow to women's status, and the next blow would come in the development of the nuclear family as a private economic unit, and dun-dun-dun, monogamy for women. (laughs) Um, so to step back and clarify this this idea of the nuclear family unit um, this, this newly forming one had never existed before this our modern and much idealized concept of the nuclear family with, the, with its single household consisting of one woman, one man and their offspring in which, um, in which all of these people depend on one another to fulfill their basic needs is a completely modern construct um, here's one example that uh, Leacock gives um, of uh, the idea that all the children in a, in a tribe are actually shared. It's not just considered a man and, and, and his wife's uh, children. Um, this is uh, from the, French, the same French Jesuits who encountered the Montagnais tribes of Canada. Father, Father Lejeune, Lejeune recounts his conversation with a Montanay man about his wife. I told him it was not honorable for a woman to love any except her, except, anyone except her husband, and that this evil being among them, he himself was not sure that his son, who was there present, was his son. He replied, Thou hast no sense. You French people love only your own children, but we all love all the children of our tribe. Um, So even in these settled horticultural societies, uh, people continued to depend on each other as a whole, and this was probably the case for some time, even after the plow was developed. Um, But as this male-dominated wealth developed, it became increasingly important for those certain wealth-holding men to name younger successors to that control of wealth, and it made sense for those successors to be the man's own offspring. And this meant, for the first time, that it was important for a man to be sure who his children were. Which meant that the imposition of monogamous marriage for women only was upon us. Um, of course, it still could be called monogamy for both, um, but you know, just to not seem unfair. But but men's strain for monogamy has always been more tolerated and justified by the same wealth-holding rulers of society. But there's no evidence to suggest that actual straining from monogamy has ever been more prevalent for men than for women. It's just that women had to hide it better, probably. So, is this starting to sound familiar? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right. Um, so, this new monogamous marriage structure for the purpose of passing on private property. Um, Private property as inheritance meant that wealth holding households now simply became a wife and husband and children, which meant that these women were not only taken out of their sphere of production but were now solely dependent on their husbands um, instead of the, instead of the whole tribe. Um, Engels and describes the property relations that they represented this is Engels. The original meaning of the word family, familia, is not the compound of sentimentality and domestic strife that forms the ideal of the present-day Philistine. Among the Romans, it did not at at first even refer to the married pair and their children, but only to the slaves. Familus means domestic slave, and familia is the total number of slaves belonging to one man. The term was invented by the Romans to denote a new social organism whose head ruled over wife and children and a number of slaves and was invested under Roman paternal power with the rights of life and death over them all. A nice little family. Um, <laughs> So, so the family was the condition for um, an, one other hallmark of women's oppression to arise, prostitution. Um, the only way for a woman to survive in this new kind of society was either inside or outside a family unit, and both depended on men. So you could be a wife or a prostitute. As Sharon Smith puts it, they're two sides of the same coin. So the nuclear family is born... And um, at first, they were the benefit of the ruling classes only, or the ruling men in, the, in those classes. Um, but as private property developed, this nuclear family structure became the main economic unit of society, um, woo! <laughs> even for peasants who owned very little. Now, this process was going on in many places, of course, and um, didn't look the same everywhere. Um, but but everywhere that private wealth was growing, um, so, so too did women's roles shift, uh, and the systematic subjugation of women began. So um, the nuclear family has gone through many changes, but um, it has survived as an essential part of class society. Um, some of the biggest social changes that it survived were happening at the time that Marx and Engels were living at the beginning of industrial capitalism. And Engels actually didn 't think the family would survive um, he saw' that's you he saw the working classes and their complete poverty and um, the fact that women had to work in factories now along with their husbands and children for 12 14 16 hours a day um, in crowded disease filled you know conditions and actually Engels was right the working class um, at that time couldn't survive literally under those conditions um, and the capitalist factory owners, instead of sort of the option of providing, um, you know, alternatives uh, for childcare and, and uh, you know, kitchens or sort of more communal uh, alternatives to the family, they chose to just, you know, pay them a little better and and ease the conditions a little more so that they could, you know, let the family keep taking these responsibilities of uh, raising children and, and feeding themselves. Um so so, so uh, our modern capitalist uh, family has, uh, has undergone further changes still, even beyond this. Um, the main change is something that Engels would never have guessed, the extent to which women could re-enter the workforce and be a major part of production. Women now make up half the workforce in this country, and yet um, he wouldn't have understood how we're still responsible for the reproductive duties in the home. Um, in an article for the International Socialist Review, Jen, Jen Roche explains this double duty that women face today. <clears throat> Society is built around the assumption that households are organized around a male breadwinner and female, free class families. This assumption justifies the double burden of labor women face. Women workers face daily. Even though women now participate in the labor force on a mass scale, because of the privatized nature of the family and women's oppression, they return home to to face a second shift of household labor. Women's role inside the family also serves to justify everything from lower wages for women to the lack of funding for child care and other social services. So women are now able to perform both roles again, pre-production and production, but our society still dictates that their primary responsibility is in the home, even if they have to work two or three jobs to get by. So um, our family has undergone changes, but um, just as when it was first created, the role of of the nuclear family is still at the heart of women's oppression today. So let's take um, just a little bit closer look at the family and then... um, and then uh, see who benefits from it and how we might end this situation for good. Um, so the, at the beginning of the family, it was just a few wealthy dudes who benefited. But, um, but now that families are the only economic unit of society, even in the working class, capi- capitalism, specifically the capitalist class of people who own and control industries and control the governments they support, um, they are the ones who benefit. They have a crucial interest in maintaining the state of affairs because of the free labor in the home that the family provides. So that remember that $11 trillion of unpaid work that women do? That's, that's the family primarily, um, and capitalists don't want to pay that. So... Um, and capitalist class politicians and corporate owners in the entertainment industry, um, you know, create this culture of sexist ideas and homophobia to the best that they can. And um, in order to justify and maintain these roles, um, they not only define what women should be, should look and be like—you know, nurturing, sexy yet not promiscuous, passive without body hair, uh, intuitive—you know, heterosexual, definitely. Um, but they also define what men should be, breadwinning, winning muscly, unemotional, sexually voracious, um, and very heterosexual. Um, this I- ideology attempts to cram lesbians, straight women, gay men, bisexual, transgendered, and intersex people, and straight men, um, all into one of these two rigidly defined categories. You know, pick one. Um, so who else benefits? Um, Capitalists clearly do, but do men in general? Um, Well, capitalist men, yes, but working class men don't benefit. And just a quick look at the modern family can show this. It's not, for instance, in a working man's interest that his wife would get paid less than her male co-workers or that his daughter might be sexually harassed or raped. Um, It's also not in his interest that that his wife that his wife, or indeed his entire family, is solely responsible for the unpaid reproductive labor in their home. Um, and capitalist class women actually do benefit. Um, you know, Hillary Clinton, again, um, might have to deal with, I don't know if people heard, a reporter asking her what her husband thinks about an issue of foreign affairs, um, but she still benefits from the current system that provides a constant supply of low-paid secretaries and nannies, as well as the countless other employees that her family um, doubtless has exploited through the generations. And by the way, when Hillary does what she wants or what Bill wants, um, you can bet that they're both going to be in the interest of their own class and likely at the expense of poor and working class women in place. So um, you might have heard Marxists say that uh, we need to abolish the family. Um, and maybe you agree, but but maybe this this sounds a little strange because um, this is only sort of true. Uh, like the rest of class society, the family is a big ball of contradictions, um, and the idea that socialists want to abolish it, um, you know, maybe you had a happy childhood. You know, it happens. <laughs> um, and and not all wives are miserable, and some men share equally in the household chores, and, and socialists are for that. Um, But there's an important distinction between the family as a social unit and the family as an economic unit. The social unit, this group of people, maybe related by blood, that choose to live together and form bonds, um, that's not exactly what we need to abolish. Uh, Humans will always live together and and share share their lives. We're social animals. Um, But it's the economic unit that we seek to not directly attack but provide an economic alternative for so that the social relations inside families of any shape or size will be freed from those strains of economic dependency. Um, because there aren 't any alternatives um, that's that 's why socialists still get married <laughs> you know we know all this <laughs> um, but you know uh so, so, and, and even after real alternatives like public nurseries, laundries, and kitchens are in place, you know, like say after socialism, um, it's not like revolutionaries are going to be like, okay everybody out, you know, <laughs> you're free, run, you know um, <clears throat> Trotsky said, uh, you cannot abolish the family, you have to replace it thanks um, the actual liberation of women is unrealizable on the basis of generalized want, so Wrapping up, how can we how can we fight this 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 oppression in general? Um, We need to build a new movement, of course, that demands women's rights. uh, One that will take up demands and the needs of working class women, like full and unapologetic abortion rights, free on demand. and you know, while we're we're building this, we can also look to look to and be part of um, you know other movements such as the LGBT rights movement for inspiration and progress, um, as they challenge what a nuclear family is with their demand for equal marriage rights, um, and their demands for full federal federal equality on the March on Washington. Um, you know, the last women's rights movement built built itself on the heels of the civil rights and anti-Vietnam War movements. So um, we can take heart that the movements of today can and will inspire coming movements. But to achieve full liberation, we will ultimately need to build a movement that challenges not just laws, but the entire system that relies on women's oppression. And the fact that women now represent half of the American workforce is a big step forward because it gives us strength and even more solidarity with working-class men and the opportunity to unite and struggle with them Um, against the bosses that exploit us both. We need to ultimately ally ourselves with our own massive class, the working class, of all genders and colors, if we are to successfully fight the small capitalist class that exploits us all. We live in a world with vast resources that can provide for all of humanity's needs and fulfillment, free reproductive options for all women, ample food and education and care for all children, housing and unemployment for all families, no matter their configuration or genders. But capitalism can't and will not provide this fulfillment. We've seen that humanity has gone through several stages of development, and even our current short stage of civilization, I argue we need to make our next stage socialism. Um, I'll leave you with a quote from Engels because he's always a good closer um, and, and he, uh, this is his vision of, of women's liberation um, after socialism <laughs> what we can now conjecture about the way in which sexual relations will be ordered after the impending overthrow of capitalist production is mainly of a negative character, limited for the most part to what will disappear but what will there be new That will be answered when a new generation has grown up, a generation of men who has never in their lives known what it is to buy a woman's surrender with money or other social instrument of power, a generation of women who has never known what it is to give themselves to a man from any other considerations than real love, or to refuse to give themselves to their lover for fear of the economic consequences. When these people are in the world... They will care precious little what anybody today thinks they ought to do. They will make their own practice and their corresponding public opinion about the practice of each individual, and that will be the end of it. Thank you. The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearmany.org.